How can we raise gatekeeping children? How can we raise gatekeeping children? So I want to read Genesis 4, Genesis 4, (coughs) 1 through 10. Hear the word of God. And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof, And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Let's pray. Lord, help us to realize that we are our brother's keeper. And please grant us wisdom to raise our children with that conviction that we are to teach them by our lifestyle, by our conversations, by our family worship, that we are our keeper's brother. And so, Lord, help us to train our children to look for positions in life, places in life, opportunities in life, where they can exercise this gift of being gatekeepers, of being their brother's keeper. Be with us now and bless this talk today and the second part of it next week, God willing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what does gatekeeping mean? What does gatekeeping mean? Well, in biblical days, cities were guarded, as you know, by high and thick walls from potential enemies. The gates served as the only entrances into the city. And so gatekeepers were appointed positions of authority to control who came in and who went out from the city. 
The gates often served as the marketplace. They served as the court of law. They served as the administrative center of the city. And most commonly, a place of public forum. People would congregate in the gates and discuss different issues. To be a gatekeeper meant to have meant to have access to the city's social center, the city's political center, and the city's economic center. Now, this is something that's hard for us to realize because when you drive into a city today, you just see a sign, welcome to Grand Rapids or something like that. But in Bible times, the entrance into a city was a critical place. I'll never forget going to the city of Dan in Israel where they have done a, a huge archaeological dig. And they actually dug up at the city gates of Dan the, the places where all the elders sat in the city gates and deliberated the decisions they had to make. You might say, kind of like a town council. So that was just one more illustration of how the city gates were a key area of the city. So a gatekeeper, someone who would allow people in, allow people out, who would be observing the daily activities around the gates, who would enter into conversations with different people, a gatekeeper was a very influential person in a society. Now, what that means then is that gatekeepers are people that just aren't in the church, in the church community, but they're out in society. And a good gatekeeper is someone who's representing God in society, is in a position of... Uh, authority perhaps, or leadership, be it, a, be it a politician, or be it a, a policeman, or a, a, a gatekeeper or businessman uh, who rubs shoulders with a lot of people, or a teacher. So the point of this, these two addresses is that we are to raise our children with the idea in mind that we convey to them, by our example, by our conversation, that they are to find a place in society where they can have influence for the glory of God and the good of society. A gatekeeping position. So just as the gatekeepers influence Israel's social and political and economic well-being, they were used also by God to stem evil and to promote good if they were God-fearing, to be a blessing for the whole city and for the whole, by extension, nation. Let me give you an example of some biblical gatekeepers. Think of Obadiah. He, in his own quiet way, was a gatekeeper, wasn't he? If you read 1 Kings 19 or 18, God placed Obadiah in his providence, 
in the gatekeeping position of governor over King Ahab's house. During the time when Elijah was witnessing to the king, and Israel experienced three and a half years of no rain and severe famine. At that time, Obadiah was governing in the palace of a terribly sinful king and a terribly wicked queen, Ahab and Jezebel. Yet the Bible tells us, interesting, verse 3, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Don't you love those words? Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Oh, would to God that God could say that of every one of our children. He feared the Lord greatly. So how did that impact his gatekeeping position? Well, every way. He became aware of the queen's murderous plans before they were executed, being in a gatekeeping position. So he was able to act in time to decrease the extent of the queen's damage. Verse 4, For it was so when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them bread and water. Wow. What an important position this man had. If it weren't for Obadiah, a hundred more prophets would have been killed. If he hadn't been in the gatekeeping position, he wouldn't have been privy to uh, Jezebel's plan, nor been able to make arrangements to keep a hundred prophets of the Lord alive with food and drink. Think of Nehemiah. God placed him in a gatekeeping position as a cupbearer of King Artaxerxes in Shushan, the palace. Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah 2. A mighty king was in continual danger of plots to kill him so that others could ascend the throne. Now, one way to accomplish that would to be to poison the king's drink, which wasn't uncommon then and isn't uncommon in certain cultures today in the world. So kings employed trusted subjects as their, that's right, cup bearers. They're cup bearers. The cup bearer just had really one job. He was to pre-taste all the king's drinks. He was to make sure in his gatekeeping position that everything that was handed to a king was safe to drink. So he was always in close proximity to the king. He was a confidant often of a king. The king would reveal his mind to him. Well, as a trusted friend of the king, Nehemiah asked the king for permission to rebuild the broken walls of Jerusalem. And being close to the king, the king obviously respected Nehemiah and wanted to please him. And he provided Nehemiah not only with a yes, but gave him royal letters, giving him official permission to build and instructing Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, to provide all the timber he needed. Isn't that amazing? Artaxerxes 
also commissioned captains of his army and horsemen to accompany and to protect Nehemiah. Now, none of that would have happened had Nehemiah not been in this gatekeeping position. So the Lord used Nehemiah, and under his blessing and Nehemiah's faithful leadership, the wall was rebuilt in 52 days. Isn't that amazing? 52 days, Nehemiah 6.15, look it up. If Nehemiah was not in this gatekeeping position in the palace, he would not have been in a position of trust and friendship with a king. He never would have got the king's approval for what he did. And Jerusalem, humanly speaking, wouldn't have been rebuilt. Think of Esther. You know the story of Esther well. I don't have to go through it all. But uh, if Esther hadn't been there, what would have happened to all the Jews in this gatekeeping position of being close to the king and then being married to the king? And Mordecai says, Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? If Esther wasn't there, she wouldn't have been able to approach and speak with the king and the day of planned destruction would not have been turned into a day of victory and celebration for the Jews. It's amazing. And of course, think of Daniel. 73 years, at least, maybe a bit more. He's in a gatekeeping position in Babylon. He serves as ruler over the province of Babylon, chief of the governors over the king's wise men third ruler over the entire kingdom under King Belshazzar, first president of three over 120 princes governing the kingdom under King Darius. Daniel hadn't been in those gatekeeping positions in Babylon. He wouldn't have been able to influence the heathen kings to make such God-honoring confessions and decrees that some of them did even though there were disappointments, Daniel had a lot of influence in a gatekeeping position. Interesting, last week, I was in, a, or maybe two weeks ago, I was at a conference, and no, I was in a church, and uh, a large church with 4,800 members. And one of the elders walks in, and I, I asked him who he was, told me his name, and um, I asked him what he did for work. He said, oh, I work down the road. And I said, well, I, what does that mean? I, I'm not familiar here. Well, down the road, he said, at the, at the government building. So I said, what do you do there? Oh, I'm a, I'm a state senator, he said. I said, what? You're a state senator? He was very humble about it. He goes, uh, yes. Hmm. I said, I've got three questions for you. Number one, is it true that it's tough to be a politician as a Christian? Number two, is it true that you can be a politician Christian? and have substantive influence. And number three, 
is it possible to be a politician Christian and have your soul farewell? That's what I said to him, just when I met him. Because I, I, these questions have often, I, I like to ask politicians these kinds of questions because I was once in the home of a politician in Mississippi who was the youngest state senator in the history of the state of Mississippi. He was 25 years old. He was voted in. And he got converted a year later. And he told me he couldn't stay in it. He said, I just had to flee it. So that's why, as a Christian, he just said it was just too tempting. So that's why I wanted to ask this man, who was older, looked more seasoned. So I expected a long, drawn-out answer. Here was his answer. Yes, yes, and yes. That was it. In other words, yes, it is tempting. Yes, you can do it as a Christian. And yes, you can have influence. He's being a gatekeeper. And I watched this man, and there was something about him. There was something about him that carried the integrity of being a Christian. But you could feel from the few comments he made, even the comments he made to me, yes, yes, and yes, you could feel the wisdom, the humility of this man. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be wonderful, wouldn't it be wonderful if we Christians would raise children and talk to them as they grow up, look for a position, a gatekeeping position, be it a teacher, be it a businessman, be it a policeman, be it somebody in politics, but a gatekeeping position where you can influence society for good. Now, it doesn't mean it's easy. These, these, these people, I just gave you an example from the Bible, they, they were living in the midst of wicked politicians. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel slaughtered the prophets and instituted Baal worship. King Ahasuerus agreed to the mass genocide of the Jews. Nehemiah faced persecution from the governors around him. Daniel continued for 73 years through the assassination of one king and through four kings' reigns and through pride, uh, rather courtiers being jealous of uh, Daniel and out of pride they tried to get him thrown into Dian's land and succeeded, the, the lion's den, rather, and succeeded. So to be a gatekeeper of the Lord in a societal position is challenging, tempting. But it doesn't mean we should avoid it. So the point I want to make with you is this. Today, the powers that be in America, as, as you well know, are largely liberal. Most of the news stations are, are liberal. Most of the people in social media are liberal. Christians have abdicated themselves. They haven't been influential. And all that liberal influence can just drag a nation down. We need Christians in every major profession of this nation. And even running for president of the United States. It's remarkable that we 
we do have some right now. And one, I'm not going to mention names, but one who's a strong evangelical Christian running for that position. Would to God there were more. Would to God we would raise our children to be gatekeepers in society. Gatekeeper maybe as a minister of the gospel. Or gatekeepers as God-fearing mothers who are examples in instructing their children and raising them to be gatekeepers as well. So, I'm not saying that everyone should be a gatekeeper in, in the sense that we're talking about here. Maybe if a person is very weak and easily susceptible to temptation, maybe politics is not for you. You see, it's not saying you have to go into politics or you have to go here or you have to go there. But you have to raise your children with this responsibility that we are our brother's keeper. We can't be like Cain and say, let the rest of the world go by. We can't be like the Amish and say, we're going to live in an enclave by ourselves. We've got to raise gatekeepers. Today, same-sex activists are disproportionately represented among our nation's journalists. They've effectively used their gatekeeping positions to bring about a host of changes that they desired with regard to uh, same-sex relationships. While the Christian church was sleeping, those with an ungodly agenda were using their gatekeeping positions. And today, many of those decisions have gone through, through the political system and been accepted, even though the majority of the citizens of the United States are opposed to it. We've been sleeping. We've been sleeping. Too often, we take such a biblical truth as this for our conversation that is, our citizenship is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we misapply it to mean that the Christian ought to be totally divorced from this world. It's not true. It used to be said of some Puritans, they were so heavenly and so holy, they were no good for this world. That's, that's a caricature. When you are so heavenly and so holy, you are your brother's keeper. You want to go out and redeem him. You want to go out and or lead him to Christ. You want to go out and, and see the world change for good. You see every unconverted person as a mission field. Now, of course, we don't believe that this world with its two-kingdom ideology, the kingdom of the church and the kingdom of society. And I'm not going to get into the two-kingdom um, theology right now, but there is a separation there. We don't believe in a strong, sharp distinction between the two as if they're two different worlds. But we don't also merge the two together. And the church, the church needs care as well. church needs leaders as ministers, elders, deacons, as we heard this morning. But we also need to be gatekeepers in that other sphere, that worldly fear, sphere, that challenging sphere of political, social, and media life 
in our culture. So how do we do this? And that leads me to the big point, number two on the rest, that basically is the rest of the outline that's going to take me last few minutes we have here and all next class to, to expound. But what we must cultivate, what we must cultivate, and I want to look with you here at eight things that we should cultivate in our children as we raise them for a gatekeeping position in this world. Number one, you want to raise them for the importance of virtues. Virtues, they need to be strong in biblical virtues if they're going to stand in gatekeeping positions. And I suggest three of them here, truth, goodness, and beauty. Since ancient times, these virtues have dominated the work of poets, of authors, philosophers, artists, and politicians, particularly those, of course, who were, who were Christians in, in the true sense of the, these words. And in these various spheres of influence, and many more, until recent times, there were solid Christian, godly scientists, for example, and, 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 and politicians who sought to cultivate these virtues in all that they did. But what we've seen in today's culture is a redefinition of these virtues. You've all heard the old adage, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And we have watched as truth has been relativized and pluralized to fit our individual preferences. So goodness, goodness is no more a euphemism or cliche term, but it's a term that's often used to express just what I want because I am God and you are God. Our ideas of goodness and beauty can be totally diverse from each other. And it's good for you and it's good for me. And you see, everything fits our own virtue system. So, there's a redefining of virtue in our culture to fit our personal agendas and philosophies rather than to take it out of the Bible, what the Bible says about these virtues, and to implement them biblically. So that's why it's so difficult to maintain integrity of heart when you're working in the public sphere. It's a challenge. And I'll be talking to you next week about the cautions we need as we step out to be gatekeepers in society. So, but what we do need is we need principled people, sons and daughters, men and women who grow up are strong in these virtues and can promote them in society to the glory of God and in consistency with the biblical mandates of goodness, of beauty, and of truth. So despite the errors of our time, it's essential that we raise our children with biblical concepts of truth, goodness, and beauty. Augustine is thought to have termed the phrase, all truth is God's truth. 
And what they meant by that, also the later reformers, is that whatever, wherever truth is, God is. Because all truth de derives its existence from God. R.C. Sproul put it th this plainly. All truth is God's truth, and all truth meets at the top. That is to say, it all is ultimately from God and flows from God through His Word to society. And so whether truth is found in the social sciences or in mathematics or in philosophy or in politics, where that truth is found, that truth is ultimately from God. So truth is not something contingent upon what I want to be true. I can't imagine, I can't imagine myself to be something other than I am and say it's true because I identify it as true. See, that's the problem with the whole transsexual movement or so. I identify as a woman, so I'm going to go out and, and have operations and become a woman, supposedly. <laughs> you can't become a woman if you're a man. It's impossible. No matter what your self-identity is in your own mind. You heard about the example, the guy from England, I'm sure, some months ago. He had to retire because he was a certain age. I don't know if it was 65 or 70, but the company said you have to retire. And he, he sued them in court because he said, I'm not 65, I'm 47. I, I, I identify as a 47-year-old. I'm convinced I'm 47, so I, you can't fire me. You know, and everybody just laughed. Everybody, it was just a joke. Everybody thought it was just hilarious commentary in our society today. But actually, what this man was saying has so much truth at the bottom of it. This is exactly what's wrong with our society. We've lost the biblical concept of truth. So whatever we imagine is now true. See, we need to raise children who know truth, know that God is from truth, know biblical truth, and then go out in society and seek to uphold that truth and proclaim that truth and live that truth and fight for that truth and so on. So, we need to raise principled young people, principled children, and I'm not saying we're not doing that. I believe we are. But we need to have in mind as we do it, that we discipline them when we see anything that violates these principles, these biblical virtues of truth and goodness. And when they do defend truth, when they do promote truth, we need to complement them, we need to affirm them, we need to build into them this conviction that they walk in truth, they walk in these godly virtues, no matter what the cost might be. So these virtues cannot be abstract principles or human opinions or personal preferences, but they must be defined along biblical guidelines. And that's why Christian education at school or in home or, or just cultivating biblical, moral virtues and principles is so important so that young people may grow up with convictions as they go out into society of what is truth and what is falsehood 
and may stand for the truth and fight against the false. Well, next week, God willing, we hope to take up the other seven things that we must cultivate. So today is more of an introduction to the subject. Let's pray. Gracious God, please bless this opening talk and help us as we go further next week to talk about seven more principles that we must cultivate in our children so that they be equipped to be uh, able to handle, by thy grace, gatekeeping positions in society. And we pray that above all, Lord, they would be able to do that not just with these principles outwardly uh, pounded into them and moved by them, but principles that are worked in them ultimately by thy Holy Spirit through true conversion and then reinforced by mom and dad. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.